Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history behind it. I'm your host, Jem Daducci, and this time round it says Silent Crossroads, and I am assuming you've never heard of that before. Don't worry, please keep listening. I assure you this is going to be an interesting one, because Silent Crossroads is a book written by me, Jem Daducci. Hi. So, if you don't know, I am actually a published historian. I've had all my non-fiction history books published through a company called Amberley. I've covered lots of different topics, things like the Romans in a Hundred Facts, or the Sultans, which is a history of the Ottoman Empire, Deus Vault, a concise history of the Crusades. Lots of different things there. However, about six years ago, Well, actually, I'm going to go a little bit further back. So, I also have a Facebook page called History Gems with a G. See what I did there? And what I did for a long time is five days a week to hear some history facts. But as the internet changed, the the page has changed. You can still go onto it, say hi, have a look at what's on there. That'd be great. Thank you very much. I actually promote this podcast on that page, for example. One of the things I do there. But... Years and years and years ago, when I first started it, I noticed that there were some real regular fans. So what I would do a couple of times a year is a way of saying thank you to those fans for their loyalty is I would create false history facts. And one of them I did about a a gentleman, I can't remember their name, apologies, but I basically made a rather glib story that he's the only British soldier to have fought in both world wars on both sides. So he'd changed sides in both world wars. And it was kind of glib. All these little articles, I always put at the top, this is not a real history article, but I'd still get some idiot underneath it going, ah, this is terrible, whatever. Check your facts. Did you not read the top bit? And also it tells me you're not one of the loyal followers. So each one was about three or four paragraphs, maybe 400 words, something like that. And and the people I wrote them about absolutely loved them and it was great but under that particular one, I had somebody else say, do you know what? That would make a really good book. And that got me thinking. And that percolated in the back of my brain for about two years. And then I finally came up with the decision to, I'm going to write the book of this little glib comment. And it took months. And my editor, who had edited all my actual history books, it also edited this book. And she really took me to task and went, well, you need to change this and you need to change that. And I really love the process, don't get me wrong. One of the great things about a historical novel is you can make things up in it. People tend to frown if you do that in an actual history book. And I don't do that for the record in the non-fiction stuff. But I also love the fact that I could write dialogue, this very little dialogue in history books. And it's like, ooh, I can get people to talk to each other. I can put words in people's mouths, and that's not a bad thing in an actual novel. And so I finally finished it. I was very pleased with it. I sent it to Amberley, and they came back and went, it's great, Jeb, really enjoyed it, but the actual world of fiction and novels is very different in publishing to the non-fiction. We just don't have the access to that market. Sorry, can't help you. So I went on a bit of a journey. I tried to get, for the first time, a literary agent. It didn't work. I remember sitting there, you know, 
actually getting in front of a literary agent is hard. Actually getting their email address and talking to them, getting them to pay attention to you, that's already a major success. But I always remember this one particular one. I, I sent it to them and their feedback was in three parts. They went, you can write. Good. You know, you, you don't want a poor quality product, do you? You want to people to actually enjoy the actual book, don't you? Great. And they said, and this is a commercial idea. World War II is always of interest. Brilliant. Excellent. I don't want to sell one copy. I'd like to sell more than one copy. Thank you very much. But then she added, but I'm just not in love with it to take it forward. It's like, really? Well, if it jumps those other two hurdles, your job is to represent people and make money. Okay, I'm not asking you to marry the manuscript. I'm not asking you for a relationship with me. I'm just asking for you to get this in front of the right people to get it published. And that was the best I had. I had other publishers sort of like running around. Get out of my office! Again, in the average day job, I do business training and I have been to something called the London Book Fair. It's the second largest book industry, publishing industry event in the world. And all you have to do is walk around this very large exhibition to realize what's the problem of the publishing world. Because there are literally, not making this up, thousands of books that they're talking about. And they're all going to be released this year. And then next year, there's going to be another thousands of books coming out. Nobody knows what's going on. As soon as Harry Potter became hot, everybody grabbed any other kind of young adult fiction to do with wizards and magic and supernatural. And most of those you've never heard of. So nobody's quite sure where to put the money and roll the dice and see what's happening. In a way, the book industry is the same as the film industry. If we're going to spend money on this thing, we want it to be a hit and we don't always get it right. So let's just make a sequel. Oh, that person was successful. Let's get that person to write another one on basically the same topic. John Grisham, incredibly successful. He's an ex-lawyer who only ever writes about lawyers and has made millions out of those books and also millions out of the book adaptations when they got turned into movies, particularly in the 1990s. Nothing wrong with that, but John Grisham knows what he's good at, but he's never going to write I don't know, a World War II drama or, or anything that isn't to do with lawyers, mainly in America as well. So I, I get it in the publishing industry, but in the end, I ended up self-publishing this. Now, I am well aware in the world of self-publishing on something like Amazon, it's the Wild West out there. There is some genuinely excellent stuff out there that just, like me, didn't get the attention it deserved. And you know, it's just sitting there and it's as good as anything that you could buy from an actual bookshop. And there's also utter garbage written by somebody in 10 minutes, never in any way edited, barely in English, and it's just junk, okay? And if that keeps them happy and they sell one copy of it, good for you, okay? You do you. But it does mean that for the average consumer, I don't know what's good and what's not. So to put it into context, this was put in front of literary editors and publishers and they liked it. My editor who publishes all the books that do get published, or edits all the books that gets published, you know, really went to town on this, perhaps worked harder on this particular manuscript than any of my history books. And I actually got Greenwich Design, a Greenwich Design a guy in there called Ted Baybutt. Thank you so much, Ted. One of my biggest fans out there and so helpful. Thank you, Ted. He sort of fell in love with it, and he managed to get one of the designers to design the cover for free. So we're talking about a, a proper design agency, a proper editor 
and a guy who's being published, so I am going to argue that this is quality. You can also say I'm biased, but all of this happened five years ago, so why am I talking about it now? Tell me why. Because I do get people occasionally saying to me, Jem, I like your books, but why aren't they on Audible? And the reality is I've spoken to my publisher, Amberly, and they say, that's just not our thing. They went, if you want to turn any of your published books into an Audible audiobook, then be our guest. You you know, you take the money, whatever, there's, we will believe way out of it. You get 100% of whatever you, you generate from it. Thanks very much. But the first thing I wanted to do was actually turn Silent Crossroads into an audiobook. And if you like this podcast, I'm going to say you're going to like this book because it is edited and read out by Greg Chapman, the editor of this podcast. Oh my God, it's a dream. So I've got no idea what kind of sound effects he's going to be putting into all of this. But what I wanted to say is, as this book and idea grew in my mind, I realized that the critical part... So at the beginning, we, we follow Harry Woods. Harry Woods is a 17-year-old Tommy in the British trenches of World War One, and the year is 1918, and he's only just arrived. He has the bad fortune of being near the front lines when the Germans launched their last great offensive on the Western Front, called the Kaiserschlacht. And the Germans rapidly using this new type of infantry called Stormtroopers, Sturmtruppen, genuine thing, that's where Star Wars got the word from, and Harry is briefly in combat, he is bludgeoned into unconsciousness, and then he wakes up in a Ger first a German hospital, then a German POW camp, and he falls in love. And that is the trigger for him to start thinking of the Germans not as some evil people, but as real human beings, and one of them he feels very strongly about. And... I don't want to sort of go away through the whole plot, but obviously after World War One, by then, Harry's very much on the side of the Germans, and so in the interwar years, he's in Germany. He befriends a German soldier and moves with him to Hanover and helps with their family business, and so he starts a career, and he ends up getting married, and he ends up getting a, having a kid, a daughter, a beautiful daughter. And... What's interesting is, of course, this is all happening in the 20s and 30s, and it allows me to tell the history of Germany in the 20s and 30s from the point of view of an outsider, and also seeing the family friction going on. For example, did you know that immediately after World War I, there was a civil war in Germany? Most people don't know that. Everybody's heard of the hyperinflation, but what people don't realize is Germany in 10 years had two economic catastrophes that wiped out everybody's savings. And that, combined with the political unrest, actual civil war, could, if somebody turns up and says, I can fix this, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? And this leads to the fact that, yes, we all know where Hitler leads Germany to, but he didn't start off by saying, I'm going to carry out the Holocaust and start the biggest war in human history. He starts off by saying things that, quite frankly, sound reasonable, even today. And in desperate situations, desperate people make desperate choices, and you then end up going down a dark road. The reason why it's called Silent Crossroads, fairly obviously, I'm going to say, is because Harry makes choices throughout his life. He comes to 
crossroads in his life where he could go one way or the other, and he does the best he can. He makes the most practical moral choice that he can with all the information that he has in that moment. And towards the end of the book, we get to see the outcome of all this, and he gets to assess, you know, did he make a difference? Was his choices correct? But while undeniably it's a book about war, Harry ends up being in two of the biggest wars of all time, and the Spanish Civil War as well, it's also a book about love, and there's very much this family drama. Particularly when we get to World War II, and just before, we can see that Harry is and his wife are sort of stunned at their daughter, who has been brought up by the German national socialist system of schooling. Their daughter is an anti-Semite, and she's a sweet little thing, but that's wrong. And it starts raising questions about, you know, this isn't just a fight for survival, this is a fight for the soul of a child. And obviously the, the daughter, in a way, is a metaphor for a whole generation of Germans that just didn't know any better. So if you want a family drama, if you want a love story, if you want exciting battle scenes, it's got something for everyone. And what I consistently got in terms of feedback afterwards is when the book finishes and you see where all of this has led, it got people thinking. I had several people saying that they had like a restless night afterwards as they just kept flipping things around in their brain. Harry is very much the everyman. He's not particularly great at anything, and therefore we can all kind of project onto him. But we can also see where things are going from the point of view of the wife and the daughter as well, and other family characters too. I'm really proud of it. It's a really, I'm going to say, really mature work, and it was the first of four historical novels that I've written. All four of them have been self-published for reasons I've explained. I have tried to get other people to pay attention to them, and my, perhaps the one I'm proudest of is using my business sales skills. I managed to get Echoes, which is a story about Vietnam, both during the war and today, with an old man, the veteran, returning to the scene of his crimes. I managed, I always had in the back of my mind that the older man could be played by Sylvester Stallone, and I managed to get a copy of it to him. Heard nothing ever since then, maybe sitting in a parlor book somewhere, but I'm just pleased that there's a little part of me thinking, maybe, maybe he's at least aware of my name sitting there on the front of the cover. Maybe at some point he'll open it, I don't know. But, hey, come on, that's pretty good that I managed to get it to him. So, and with no help from a publisher or anything like that. So, back to Silent Crossroads. It is now on Audible, right now. Look, you want to read it, it's an ebook and it's a paperback. But if you want to listen to it like a podcast, well, you can do that. Yes, it costs money. Yes, it's on Audible because you've got to put it somewhere. For the people who say, I don't like giving Amazon money, well, it's like they make it easy to self-publish. I'm sorry about that. You know, if you're that angry with them perhaps don't bring me into it if you want to help support me in a little way that would be great but what we're doing this time round on the podcast is something a little bit different because yes i'm explaining it and i'm explaining a people i'm calling it pop cultures a little grandiose to me it has sold hundreds of copies or downloads whatever you want to call them not thousands but what I love is the fact that anybody who does sort of get in touch with me about this, it's it's really spoken to them. And that's the best thing. You know, I'd rather move one person than have a million people buy it and go, 
that's garbage. This person is a terrible writer. So, I mean, look, I'd love it if I could sell a million copies and get, a, get them saying it's brilliant and it really moved me, but I'm realistic. That's not going to happen. Or, or maybe I'm one of these people that dies not knowing that they ended up considering being quite a good writer. <laughs> I think that's what every self-published person hopes. It's like, okay, fine, it's not going to work for me while I'm alive. Maybe when I'm dead, they'll think of me like, you know, I don't know, catching the rye or whatever. So... With that in mind, what we're going to do in the second half of this podcast is you've heard from the author, you've heard the explanation, and hopefully you you understand it. It I would say that it's unlike this podcast, which I try and make suitable for all, I don't hold back on things like the violence of warfare. I think that that would be wrong of me. If somebody just fires a shot and somebody falls over... That's not showing you the visceral nature of war and the fact that a life has been taken. So the battle scenes are bloody. We're talking about a man going through his life. So yes, he's going to, well, he ends up having kids. So that means he's going to have a sexual relationship with a woman. And, and so there are, if this book was a, was a movie, I would say it would be rated 15 in Britain or R in America because yeah, it's, it's, it's adult topics as it were. And so what we're going to do now is you get to hear Greg. You very rarely get to hear Greg on this podcast, but we're actually going to play a bit early on in the episode or in the, in the book, I should say. What is, what, do you, what is the phrase for a book on Audible? I mean, I guess it's just a book, isn't it? Audio book. So you're going to get a chunk here. It's going to take you through a little part to do with Harry early on in the story. It's not right at the beginning, but it's close to. And yeah, it'll stop. And then I hope that you sit there and go, I want to know more. Thank you very much. Now, for for the record, behind the scenes, I was talking to Greg about this. And he's got to use the German accents because nationality and identity is, is so interwoven in this story that it would be weird if literally everybody had a British accent. We also joked going back to that Vietnam one, seeing everybody's American, there's quite a large amount of dialogue from an African-American man and also from a Vietnamese man. You can't have a British guy do that one. Sorry about that. Uh, But yeah, Greg sort of going, thank God you picked this one because the German accent's okay. But yeah. So I really hope that you enjoy this. And if it does tickle your fancy, it's available on Audible now. It would be great if you could support this book. And it would be interesting to see, you know, if I end up selling more Audible books than the e-books or, or paperbacks, then I might well turn one of my history books into into an Audible and give Greg some, some more work that way. But thank you very much for listening to my intro. And now I take you to Silent Crossroads by Jem Daduchu on Audible. France, 1918. The troops have been marching for miles, their crisp, clean uniforms marking them out as new recruits. When they arrived at the supply camp, they were ordered to file into an old brick storehouse, now being used as a briefing and training facility by the British Fifth Army, located just east of Bapalm. It was time to introduce these green Tommies to what lay ahead. The fresh-faced young men chatted amongst themselves, sharing out cigarettes and stories as they waited for their induction to begin.
A small raised platform and a military map of the front were already in place as an officer strode onto the stage. His olive green uniform was immaculate. His cap with gold trim was that of a colonel. The murmurs of dozens of voices subsided in deference to the officer's rank. I welcome you all, the colonel started in a measured voice. I know you are new to this, and it is my intention that the men you are replacing are the last ones I will ever have to replace. The room went quiet with the colonel's reminder that these men were literally filling dead men's shoes. Unfortunately, I have said that to every new group that has come through the briefing room. But you, the fresh recruits of 1918, have missed a lot of hard fighting and bloodshed, because that's what it takes to win a war. For every mile we capture from the Hun, ten, twenty, maybe thirty thousand of our brave soldiers lie dead in the mud and ditches this war is so good at making. The silence was now an unnerving stillness. The troops were transfixed partly in admiration, partly in horror at the grim realities being revealed by the man in front of them. The Germans started this war when they invaded neutral Belgium, but they have committed crimes much worse than we expect to see even in war. When Belgium troops had the temerity to try and defend their own country, the Germans used their bayonets to crucify them on farmyard doors, a true crime against all that's noble and civilised. Once the trenches locked down both sides, they were the first to resort to the sheer barbarity of gas warfare. And civilians. Civilian casualties mean nothing to them. They shot the nurse Edith Cavell for being a spy. A female nurse faced a firing squad. Their navy attacked our seaside resorts. Their zeppelins have bombed London. And let's not forget that their submarines have been sinking dozens of ships, drowning thousands of men women and children, in the northern Atlantic. The men's faces hardened, teeth were clenched. The litany of atrocities was doing its job. So yes, our men die, but they die to kick this accursed disease called the Hun out of France and Belgium. They die to save civilised society from kraut barbarism. They die so that we can beat the Bosch. Our men may be dying, but theirs are dying in greater numbers. They are like carrion flies buzzing around the borders of other countries, waiting to spread their disease into any country they can. We have stopped them. Now it's time to annihilate them. The men roared as the base feelings of war and bloodletting were unleashed. These men had been fed on stories of German outrages since they were boys, and now the first officer they'd met in France was giving them permission to kill. Kill the Hun, butcher the Bosch bastards. Private Harry Woods was 17 years old. He had reached his full height, but he had yet to fill out. His abundant blonde hair had a soldier's crop, and his young face still had a hint of the acne that was finally receding as his adolescence waned. His coarse uniform was too big for his slight frame. It appeared as if he had been lashed into it, his belt and putties keeping him in. The troops were bivouacked in a barn, able to spend the night on camp beds the last bit of comfort before the trenches tomorrow. Harry sat chatting with his new pal after Marsden, who was a few years older and a lot broader. The men were finishing off their evening meal and winding down after the march and the colonel's speech. A cloud of cigarette smoke hung over them. 
Tell you what, Art, that colonel gave us a good show, but he's not fooling me. Sure, the Krauts have been bastards, but are you telling me we aren't as big a bunch of bastards? asked Harry. Look, Harry, you can have your own opinions in civilian life, but you're in the army now. We do what we're told, and those Bosch bastards don't care what your views are. They'll shoot you as quickly as a real patriot. I know that, interrupted Harry, who was brimming with nervous energy. But I don't plan on taking a Bosch bullet. I don't think anyone is planning on taking a Bosch bullet. But tell that to the thousands of poor bastards who already have. Listen, I may only be a squaddy, but the talk is that since Fritz has made peace with Russia, they've got hundreds of thousands of battle-hardened troops moving over from the Eastern Front to the Western Front. And you know what that means? Peace at last? said Harry, deliberately missing the point. Try a spring offensive with a million men, retorted Arthur, ignoring Harry's sarcasm. Jesus, said Harry, pausing for thought. You mean there could be a million veteran Krauts waiting to attack us right now? Arthur laughed. Oh, Harry, there have always been a million Germans waiting to attack. Where do you think the Kraut army has been for the last three and a half years? It's just that now they have friends. And those friends have been fighting the great Russian bear for three years and have come out the other end as tough as tarmac. All right, you two, came a gruff voice. Enough of the idle chit-chat. Lights out in five. Yes, Sarge, both men replied automatically. Men packed away kit and settled on their cots. Some took a last drag on a cigarette. A few finished off letters to home. And so the lights went out at 2200 hours on 20th of March, 1918. Six hours and 40 minutes later, their world was thrown into complete chaos. At first it sounded like faint whistling, then whistling followed by the rumble of thunder. But as the thunder grew closer, the noise changed into the unmistakable sound of high-explosive shells smashing into the ground, gouging out great craters of soil. The shells were falling like rain, in a barrage that seemed to come from all directions. The monster of war roared again and again outside the brick barn. The earth shook and the timbers trembled. Dirt and plaster showered the sleeping men as they roused themselves to consciousness and leapt groggily out of their beds. Lost in panic and confusion, they grabbed boots and rifles and anything else that seemed to be of use. The sergeant struggled for order. He'd been in similar situations before, but right now he was in a furious bombardment with a bunch of snot-nosed recruits. At least there was a saving grace of being a few miles behind the trenches. Everyone calm down, stop shouting and listen, bellowed Sergeant Froll. While he was yelling as loudly as he could, his voice was barely audible over the whine of incoming artillery and the explosions that followed. When order was restored, the men lay near their cots and waited for the barrage to finish, the vibrations of the shockwaves from all the detonations reverberating through their chests. Harry gripped his steel helmet, as if it would give him some kind of magical protection from the explosive fury. You know those million Germans you were talking about? shouted Harry to Arthur. Yes. I think they heard you, yelled Harry, a nervous grin on his face. Shut up, Private, barked Sergeant Frawl. The German artillery continued to rain down death, not just on Bapalm, but for miles around. 
The ground was shaking so incessantly that it felt more like an earthquake than the commencement of a battle. Sergeant Frawl tried to wrestle back the initiative with his men. All right, you lot, I've got good news and bad news. He paused as one of the windows blew inwards and showered a cot in glass. The good news is this bombardment means their troops are getting ready to attack, but they aren't out their trenches yet. How's that good news? yelled Private York. Shut your mouth, Private. I suggest you don't interrupt the man trying to save your worthless lives. The bad news, continued Frawl, shooting a meaningful look in the direction of York, is that as soon as it lifts, they'll be moving out not only towards this area, but, by the sounds of things, for miles on either side of us. Therefore, as soon as Fritz stops, we will have to get down to the trenches and support the front line. Harry and Arthur looked at each other from under their cots, Harry still gripping his helmet. They didn't have to say a word. Their eyes fully conveyed the fear and apprehension everyone felt. This was it. This was their moment of truth. Would they walk away from this as veterans who'd survived a tough fight? Or would they become casualty statistics and telegrams to their mothers? Dawn broke, revealing a sea of fog, and still the deadly hail slammed into the ground. The farmhouse could only just be seen through the grey murk. It had taken a direct hit and was now a blasted ruin. A split second was all it had taken to destroy a building that had been a family home since before the French Revolution. Corporal Perkins barely escaped when the unrelenting shockwave caused a corner of the barn roof to collapse. The German artillery pounded on and on. The barrage lasted for so long and was so fierce that Harry felt as if he couldn't remember life before it. The never-ending noise was deafening. His body pulsated with the constant concussion of high explosives tearing up the surrounding countryside. His ears were still ringing from the blast that had demolished the farmhouse. He wanted to cry but was too scared to do so. He hoped the knot in his stomach was from the constant shockwaves, but he knew it was fear. It was gnawing at him from the inside as an angry beast snarled at him from the outside. His plan to kill Germans seemed to have one tiny flaw. It looked like they were going to kill him first. The oppressive wall of mist made everything more terrifying. Surroundings that should have been visible were hidden by the fog. It was as if some great war god had erased all the sights in the world and replaced them with the sounds of sickening thuds, the booms of near misses, the whiz of shells arching through the air, the dull crump of distant detonations. For any man brave enough to look out of the window, all that could be seen was part of the farmyard and the ruined hulk of the still-smouldering farmhouse. Then, finally, one of the most intense artillery bombardments of the whole war, indeed, one of the most explosive in the whole of human history, ended abruptly. After hours of bludgeoning, their senses took several seconds to register the silence and a terrible, foreboding stillness which could not last. As soon as it had settled on the cowering troops, it was broken by the telltale percussion of rifle and machine gun fire. The German assault had started. <laughs>